Welcome to the Lion's Share Podcast for marketing leaders by marketing leaders. Brought to you by Fidelitas Development, your marketing partner for better brand loyalty. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Lion's Share Marketing Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Tyler Sickmeyer, alongside my much more handsome and much more single co-host, Kyle Weber. Kyle, thanks for joining us today. Kyle, it's great to be here. Awesome. Yeah. So Kyle's working abroad uh, from, from the foreign land of the panhandle and we're still coming to you live. We've still got a lot of great content to share with you today. We've got a great guest with some great insights to share, uh, Tom Hume, who spent some time at Toshiba and has a lot of accomplishments there that we'll get into shortly. But first, uh, Kyle, what's in the news today? News team, assemble! Today, we have an article from Moz.com called Proximity to Searcher is the new number one local search ranking factor. This is a very interesting article. In his example, Darren Shaw does a Google search for plumbers in an incognito Chrome window, and he finds something really interesting. First of all, he puts a table together, and he shows where they're ranked, if their pages were claimed on Google, what the content quality was like, they had domains, links, citations, views, or if they had a website. So here's the, here's the incredible thing here, that none of the businesses had even claimed or verified their Google pages, and none of them had any reviews, and only one of those businesses had a website. So is SEO so a scam? Question, well, here's, here's the question. Uh, the question is, why are these businesses showing up in the results? And according to Darren Shaw, and I quote, Proximity to searcher is the new number one ranking factor in local search results today. Why do you think Google is doing this? Why, Google? Oh, part of this, Kyle, I think really goes back to the fact that Google's trying to serve everyone on their mobile devices first. That's where the majority of searches are conducted now is on a mobile device. So Google figures half the time, if you're searching for a local service on your phone, you're going to want something near you, especially if you're in a market like Los Angeles or Houston or Atlanta, where a trip across town means half of your day or in Nashville, where it now means your entire day, as you well know. So I think Google's trying to better serve its users. I don't think they're trying to outgame the SEO pros at this point. But I do think it's something that from an SEO standpoint, we all need to pay attention to and we need to make sure that we're really on our game because all the other factors, Kyle, I think are much more important now than they used to be. You know, things like the directory listings and making sure that uh, your contact information is correct across the board and then also making sure that your, your website is optimized as well as it possibly can be. Because really what it does is it puts more pressure uh, for local businesses to have their SEO in order to get a better ranking from Google in the long run. If anything, you have to double down on your efforts. And I think a lot of local SEO pros that maybe uh, made their cheddar doing some on-paid SEO years ago, and they've just kind of said it and forget it. And now here they are uh, a couple years later, still collecting those SEO checks. They're going to have to get back out and hustle on it and work on it. But I think if you've got a continuous SEO campaign where you're constantly looking for ways to improve, you're constantly looking for quality links and developing new content, I think you'll be okay in the long run. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's a great point. And I, I do agree too that, you know, anything that you can do to just diversify your optimization would be great. I know Darren Shaw in this article particularly, he recommends that you make sure you're on Yelp and the Better Business Bureau, TripAdvisor, so on and so forth, you know, just to get as much information pointing back to your website as possible. Another thing that a lot of businesses need to take into consideration is if they're not running 
AdWords, they may consider it. It may work for their business. For instance, if you're a business on the outskirts of town, most of the people are essentially located in a town. You know, you need to get noticed. You need to get your brand noticed. And so I think it might need to consider running some sort of AdWords campaign in order to make sure that you're being seen. What do you think about that, Tyler? I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, and again, that's where it's coming down to anyways with a lot of searches. Google got rid of the ads on the side of search and so they only have the main search ads now. And so really you've got to stake your claim there because I've seen searches where the top five or six results are, are all ads before you get to even the number one ranking. So really it behooves local organizations to take advantage of their own branded keywords from an AdWords campaign as well as going after competitors keywords. If you're a local tire shop and the tire shop across town hasn't set up their own branded keywords campaign on AdWords, you can go and pilfer a lot of their traffic because they're not on top of it, regardless of who's getting the first listing for the organic side. So I think there's a lot mm-hmm. of opportunity for businesses that are willing to invest a little and double down on their SEO and SEM strategy for sure. Good stuff, Kyle. Definitely. So that's what's in the news. Let's get to our interview with Tom Hume. All right, and welcome to another edition of the Lionshare Marketing Podcast. Today's guest is Tom Hume. Tom is a senior marketing executive and consultant in transition. Uh, He worked most recently with Toshiba, and he's also worked for other companies that you've uh, definitely heard of if you haven't lived under a rock in the tech age, like Quest, Sage Software, Gateway Computers, uh, Sprint, and Verizon. So uh, Tom has a a wealth of uh, marketing experience, and we're very excited to have him joining Kyle and I here today. So Tom, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Thank you. And, and, and thanks for joining us on what is a, uh, at least for Tom and I, a rainy San Diego day. We don't have too many of those. Yeah, it's funny. When earlier I was telling Kyle that last night I was looking at Twitter and trending was LA rain. And it's so funny. It's so rare that it actually trends when it happens out here. That's exactly right. Everyone talks about it. And no one knows how to drive in it. So Tom, today we really want to talk to you more about marketing to millennials and how you made an older established brand more relevant to a millennial audience. I know a lot of our listeners out there, a lot of marketing leaders struggle with uh, trying to reach and engage millennials in a relevant way. So tell us about your experience doing that with Toshiba. Sure. Yeah. So I started with Toshiba a bit over five years ago. And when I first came there, I immediately started digging into the research and started to understand our our customers better. And actually, even just stepping back just a little bit. So Toshiba, a lot of people know the brand, but maybe don't know how big the brand really is. And it's over $50 billion company, over 130 years old. And it's interesting. It's almost like the Siemens or the GE of Japan. So in Japan, you see Toshiba everywhere. They make everything from nuclear power plants down to rice cookers and virtually everything in between. So everything from car batteries to elevators to air conditioning units. And But what I worked on mostly in the U.S., North America, and South America was a laptop business, laptop, TVs, and storage products. And so when I first joined Toshiba, I did some research and found out the average age of the laptop buyer for Toshiba was actually 48 years old. I thought it was very interesting. I thought that was actually old, definitely. Oh, for sure. Uh, I did find out that the industry average, though, was 40. So we were crazy off, but still, it seemed old, especially for as you had a larger population and a larger buying population for millennials coming up. I suspect maybe for a lot of millennials, maybe their first PC was probably bought maybe even by their parents and such. So maybe that's why it's skewed because there was that disposable income at the higher end. But still, we had a, a, an audience that we wanted to reach better, and that was a younger buyer. 
And Apple had done a terrific job, literally by getting into schools early with that millennial generation and becoming the computer of of main interest and then having their whole great ecosystem tied to music and everything else. So Toshiba was in an interesting situation because it had really lost relevance to a millennial audience. It it did actually fine and a great loyalty at an older audience. I would do brand tracking studies every quarter and it would always pop up very consistently. It always seen as a very high quality product, product that was always a really good value. But it didn't have attributes like innovation or attributes like product that I want to own or stylish. It didn't always have that flair as a lot of consumer electronics companies went for that space much, much better. With that understanding of we're missing a millennial audience and with the understanding of the buying power of that population really set about to really try and change that for Toshiba and make it more relevant to a millennial crowd. Jumping really forward, the end result is by the time I actually left Toshiba, we got the average age of the Toshiba buyer down to 38. And uh, and again, the industry average was still right around 40. So I was very pleased about that. But I had to really revise how we thought about the marketing we did. And it's interesting too, because you could probably think over the last five years or even further back, most laptop companies, their marketing is pretty similar. A lot of it is show pretty pictures of the product, you know, spinning around and moving and you know, really speak to the, what we always call the speeds and feeds of the product, you know, just the specific specification of what's inside that computer and what it does. But we really didn't tell a story in the past of what does the brand itself mean and, and why should you care about that particular product and that brand? So, the way that I've worked to try and get a bigger millennial audience was uh, one was changing up our media and our media approach. And that required very different type of media buy, of course, much more mobile as that was exploding during those, those years too. Of course. Um, and, and, a, and a bigger focus on social too. Um, the other piece to it was really looking at creative differently and the way we told our story of our products differently. And actually jumping to one of those one of those sort of media spaces, uh, social. Social was a very interesting one for us because when I started at Shiba, we only had uh, 30,000 fans. So I knew I wanted to grow that, but I also knew from experience with other companies that unless the customer support piece was fully tied into the social media piece, that would just that would die on the vine for us. I mean, if somebody's having problems with their computer, they go berserk <laughs> and they, they flame out every social community space that they can um, in their frustration. And, and you can't blame them too much and then it's easy access. So, but I learned from my years when I was with Quest, which Quest is a high-speed internet company out of the uh, Rocky Mountain states. Social media was actually owned by the support department uh, customer service department it wasn't even owned by marketing. It wasn't even owned by PR or any of that. It was it was purely a customer support function, and as a result, they had one of the best social media followings and engagement because they did have fun with it. But they were always always there too, as almost the first place people would go for support. So I knew I had to make that connection within Toshiba and and reached out to my friends who were in the support department and was able to get a, a body basically secured that could follow our social footprint. And they were using, I believe they were using the, the lithium tool at the time. And then over time, we were actually able to prove that we saved money by having a support person, even though it was a salary of a support person fully dedicated to that, 
we saved money because we actually saw call volumes to our call center go down. And um, you guys may not be aware of the economics of call centers, but call centers actually can be very, very expensive. I mean, just to pick up the phone at the call center, it can be $8 by the time you figure in all the salaries and everything that you go into investing in call centers. We're having this new way for customers to get to us, social, and ways that they were interested to get to us anyways. Um, it just, it, it formed a bond with our customers that we were able to actually get them to places where we had a, already had a great knowledge base and we already had other great online tools so we could, you know, from less difficult computer questions, we could get things answered very quickly with just a quick response. And then stuff that was harder, we'd work it through and, and maybe have to make a, a customer would have to make a phone call in. So getting that all in place was the first thing I had to do and um, did that. It worked out great. And by the time I left, we had, we're up to 1.5 million kind of in our fans and following with pretty high engagement. So then the way to get the high engagement was kind of from, I mean, you guys appreciate this from an advertising standpoint, but, you know, being on the client side, uh, I've worked in the past with agencies that because their wheelhouse was so much, say, broadcast advertising, you know, they see all marketing as well, what's the broadcast ad look like. Yep. And um, really, really, yeah, I'm sure you've seen that. And heard oh, that. Of course. And, and, and it's a shorthand to, and, you know, for a lot of clients, you know, even clients who actually doesn't even, don't even have the budget to do that. That's, you know, mentally where they go quite often. So I really, um, fortunately, I had a great agency that I was working with, and, and they really understood the digital space, and they really understood how to do good digital storytelling. So I, I made sure that our orientation started at digital first, and then if we could expand that out to um, all other integrated marketing vehicles, we'd do that. So um, we did a lot of storytelling, just um, a lot of um, video content to try and show the features of the product in a unique way, but in a way that was a nice story that people would have fun passing along. I'll give you an example of it. We were launching a product called an Ultrabook. The whole industry was launching Ultrabooks, and we were trying to get the name of our Toshiba Ultrabook out there. Their claim to fame is they were super thin, very light, very quick startup time. And this was a way, that actually, quite honestly, that the PC industry was trying to catch up to Apple a little bit because Apple had some of those features to it. But this was going to be much more common than these super thin, light laptops. The trick was, how do we get that across to somebody? Because you can see a picture, even a digital ad of a laptop, but and you can get some comparisons maybe to how thin it is, but you never get a real sense of, oh, how light is a couple pounds, really? And how is that different from what I do today? My agency came up with a very clever idea, and that was to literally have people have a Ultrabook slipped into a bag that they're carrying and they wouldn't even know because it's so light, they wouldn't even know there's any difference. That's clever. So we, yeah, yeah so we, we, we hired, uh, actually Jamie Kennedy's production company. He had a, he had a prank sort of TV show on for a few years. I remember that. That's awesome. Yeah. So we hired them and we hired two professional pit pockets, which was, I always went back to my agency and said, you know, how did you find professional pit pockets? But, but I guess one actually does uh, consult and advise to the FBI. The other was uh, like a sleight of hand magician. Is that a skill and, you can uh, get endorsed for on LinkedIn? I'll have to search for that. I, I, these, these guys are probably the, the top guys in the country that do this. It's pretty amazing. 
Um, and so we had a sort of a setup story where it was an accomplice, you know, a friend of the person who was the, the patsy in the case. And um, they thought they kind of came in and they thought they were, you know, interviewing to possibly be on like some reality show. Um, and they were given a whole bunch of materials in a shopping bag related to the show. And, and as they left, um, that's when we set them up. And they didn't realize the way cameras everywhere and microphones everywhere. And so they did the pit pocket move where they dropped the laptop into someone's bag. And then a security guy came out and then said, hey, we're missing the laptop. You might if I check your bags. And then after that point, the person realizes there's one in there that they didn't put in there. And hilarity ensues and they're all panicked. And um, so it was, it was fun. Awesome. It was a very fun shoot to do. We ended up... Uh, cutting about four really good ones, the best ones. And in the end, the, the person who was, had the prank pulled on them um, was actually given the laptop, so they were pretty happy about it. Through the process of it, and just even the way we prompted the language, we were able to get them to talk about how light the laptop was or how fast the laptop was. In fact, um, and I could provide some links to some of that. Uh, that spot, but it, it, it was just a very clever and very different approach to having, you know, almost a testimonial of, wow, it was so light, I didn't even know I was carrying it, uh, but in a fun way, in a fun way that people could pass along. And then we took that into other spaces where we would, one, I remember one of the Facebook things we did is uh, imagine like a control room where a security person is monitoring several different TV screens of hidden cameras. We would show all this right on the the Facebook feed, and you'd actually see movement in all these screens, and you would have to spot in which screen uh, where our pickpocket dropped a, a laptop into somebody. So there'd be like nine screens you'd have to be following at the same time. So it became a little bit of a contest too. Yeah. So uh, so anyway, so that was an example of just how we could uh, you know really demonstrate the uniqueness of a super light and thin laptop. In, in a way that just a you know, common man would uh, not really think about doing that, but it would, it would it really broke through. Another example was we had a product called the Click, where it was a detachable screen that would be more like a tablet from your keyboard. And the industry had come out with these for a while, but a lot of the the, the clicking motion it was it was very tricky. You always had to have two hands involved. You always had to have um, you know, throwing a special key, a, a little latch over on the hinge, and then you could, you know, pop this thing out. And it, a lot of other detachables just were not that impressive. And the way they detach, there's more of a fight to detach it, and you're always afraid you're going to break something. But we developed a product called the Satellite Click, and literally it was just a one-handed push down, pop up, and the thing just popped right out in your hand. We thought, well, that's pretty amazing, because you can actually do this with one hand, easy, and you don't have to worry about, you know, breaking anything. And so we did a kind of fun sponsorship. It was our own sponsorship of a sort of a man on the street, one-handed challenge. So we had contestants that who, you know, people would walk by, we'd offer oh, cool. them money if they could do certain tasks with one hand, like tasks like opening a pickle jar with one hand or putting a diaper on a baby with one hand oh. or putting a bra on with one hand. So we got footage of, you know, people going by trying to do these things. And, you know, if they were successful, they got money. If they didn't, they didn't. But it was all sponsored by the Yeshiva uh, Click. So, um, cool. so again, yeah. So just finding, yeah. So what? just through that kind of storytelling, those kind of fun ways 
do it, you get a feature of the product known versus just talking to the feature of the product or even yeah. showing it in a very standard way. So I have a question for you. When it comes to storytelling and marketing to millennials, are you finding that they are responding more to storytelling than you know, some of the old, like the genera generation X? That's a great question. I, I guess I'd answer that in two ways. I mean, one, I think storytelling, good storytelling and good advertising are almost synonymous. Um, and uh, for, as a marketer's view, for me, the storytelling always has to start with really understanding the customer um, and then understanding whatever that differentiation is in your product and make sure that weaves into the story in a strong way. I'll give you an example. We, when I was at Toshiba, I worked a lot with Intel as a partner. And Intel, you, you would always see traditionally that as a, as a sub-brand or an uh, integrated brand right into the products. So you'd always mm -hmm. even literally hear the Intel bum, 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 right. you know, at the end of stuff. We're literally integrated into the advertising of PC companies. So I was working with our partners at Intel, and they were in the same boat. They, they were showing in their research that they were losing relevance to a millennial audience. We had always partnered together, too, where we would do campaign work where they might supply half of the funds for the media and we'd supply the other half. So a lot of strong partnerships all the way through. So working with them, and they were up for the challenge, we decided to, how do we do something really, really different and more in a storytelling venue? And with Intel, I had the great fortune of creating what we were calling social films. There was a few of these earlier on in the early years. BMW did a few, where it was almost a whole little mini movie that you'd find on the web, and the product would be integral throughout it. But we took that to the next level. We actually did three years in a row. So that's what we ended up doing three different films. It was clearly a, uh, an episodic movie almost. It would be in you know five to eight minute episodes and they would be released first year we didn't really say when we were releasing each episode because it was kind of a mystery thriller type story uh to get the following and get the interest uh the second year we were very much like a, a network where we said it'll be released at this time on this day once a week and then by the third year we almost did it more than netflix style we just released the whole thing at once which oh, yeah. is kind of you know, adapting to those changes. But um, these inside films, one was called Inside, and in that case, it was a story. We actually had some great uh, Hollywood talent. Emmy Rossum was in it. There was a story of this woman who, young woman who gets kidnapped. She's in a room. She doesn't know where she is, and all she has is her own laptop to communicate out via social media to, to friends. And, you know, through some... Um, a little bit of suspension reality. We were set it up that this this kidnapper basically made it so you couldn't find her IP address where she was exactly. Mm. Uh, but the whole thing was through clues that were in the room she was in and through talking with people on social media, you could actually put together this map to find out where she was, literally. And so we had the whole fan base helping to get this woman out of this trapped room. And... Um, Wow. And, uh, yeah, it was pretty, pretty amazing. We actually were the top trending. It was called Save. Christina Ferrara was one of the top trending that, during this thing. Um, it, it, when we were running that, it was always in the top 10 viral films the weeks we were running. That's um, awesome. 
Yeah, so that was that was our first year, and our second year we went to a romantic comedy. And it was a great story. It was called The Beauty Inside. Amazingly, it ended up winning uh, a national Emmy. It won awards at the Cannes Film wow. Festival, and and yet this thing was basically advertising. But what it was, it was a terrific story. That's why it worked. It's a story of imagine you, uh, you know yourself, you know yourself inside. But if every day your body changed into something completely different. So maybe one day you're an 80-year-old Asian woman, and the next day you're a 260-pound African-American bodybuilder. No. And, and how would you live your life if suddenly you just woke up every day and you were a different body? You know, I've been waiting for closets. that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> you'd have uh, two closets of clothes. You'd have uh, different cosmetic products in your bathroom. We don't really explain how this character got this way, but the way the story is told, people just come along with it. And the problem is the challenge, of course, it's got to, got to be a challenge that the protagonist has to overcome is he falls in love with somebody. So, but how does he tell this person who he is if he changes every day? So it was a, it was a great story and it's all about who you are inside. The first one, it wasn't released all at the same time. The audience helped you discover and then in this one, it, you said that it was released like weekly, like um, there were updates weekly. Yes. So, yeah, the, the videos were updated weekly, but each of these films always had a social component running in the background. Mm-hmm. For that first one I mentioned, because it was kind of a mystery, we had a whole background story literally in social media of this girl's friends, this girl's boyfriend, because people were suspecting the boyfriend kidnapped her. So people could go really deep and wide into seeing who this person was because she was actually a person or a virtual person online. For the beauty inside, um, what was so important of this is the catalyst that moved the story along was the laptop itself because this character who changed every day kept a video blog every day when they were a different oh, nice. body. And so we, could, we actually had wide open casting to uh, people who could actually participate in the movie itself, and they were in the movie itself, sometimes just online in the social sense, or because they would see the post of that person of the character's blog, or sometimes actually in the movie. Um, and so we would actually cast them into it uh, while it was happening. So literally it was a cast of thousands <laughs> for this character. And again, the laptop is always front and center because the character in whatever form they were, were always looking, you know, into the camera on the screen, doing their blog. And then the last one we did, uh, we decided to go sci-fi and kind of comedic and it was called the power inside. And, uh, it actually had a great cast to it. Harvey Keitel was in it. That one, it was sort of an invasion of the body snatchers. But if you can imagine the things that were invading your body were actually mustaches that would attach to you <laughs> with a little bit of a backhanded swipe at hipsters and stuff. And if you're a woman, yeah. it became a unibrow, unibrow attached to you and you were under their mind control. So suddenly <laughs> your characters throughout this movie started walking with a zombie-like look, having mustaches, great mustaches all the way through. Yeah. And then, Was this filmed in yeah. Nashville? Because I'm, I feel like that would be a natural place to film this. <laughs> no, it was shot out. It was shot out in LA, but uh, okay. A lot of hipsters out but, there, you know. Well, yeah, like, yeah. There was no no shortage of uh, of great stashes. <laughs> so, that's, that's and, and in this, it, 
So, and then in this case, because it was comedic, but but it, but it, the other piece to it is the only way you could um, get these mustaches off somebody that was mind controlling them is if you showed them a video of somebody shaving off a mustache and they kind of like literally freaked out on the face, moved around and you could take a straight blade and just cut it right off. <laughs> so the laptop became the weapon because they would just quickly open the laptop, show these videos of people in there and shaving off mustaches, which of course our audience did. They provided those videos uh, that we used actually in the film. And then we also had this other tool where just like today, where you have sort of virtual zombie picture or whatever, where it takes your own picture and does something. We had an app that basically would add this mustache and the put a red glowing eyes to your own face. And, and some of those images actually ended up in a particular scene in the movie too. Super well planned out uh, to, to pull that off, but really great storytelling. And, and the, you know, aside from awards and stuff, the coolest thing was the numbers. So yeah, tell us about the numbers. I'm, I'm curious about the numbers. Yeah. So the first one, the inside experience, the inside that had over 50 million views. Uh, if you put all the episodes together, beauty inside had uh, 69 million views and the power inside the last one had 73 million views worldwide. You know, just those numbers alone. I mean, that's, yeah, that's gross. You'd have to put together, you know, NBA playoff games to hit those kind of numbers. Mm-hmm. You'd have to put together big award show numbers to hit those kind of numbers. And uh, But the beauty of it, and this was what's great, because not just simply advertising, the audience was actually seeking these things out weekly. They right. wanted to come back, and then they were participating, whether they were trying to get into the film or whether they were trying to find clues to solve something for the film or comment on blogs about the film. Those particular projects actually did a lot for Toshiba and really getting a millennial audience. In fact, going back when we researched it, I mean, the average viewer age was 23 for these. So that's, um, that will definitely pull down the, you know, you said the average age was 48 at first and came down yeah. to mm-hmm. the average age of 38. So do you credit, yeah. credit storytelling in these projects for pulling that age down to 38 with an average viewer I, 23. I, I definitely do because I think that's that's where Shiva became suddenly a little more relevant, a little more irreverent to what mm-hmm. other other people in the industry were doing and the way they were marketing. And uh, so I, it definitely helped all the way along. So now I have another question to follow up with that. If you are changing your messaging in order to reach the millennials, are you also still reaching the Generation Xers? Yeah, that's a great question. That was one of my biggest fears going into it, is that we're going to lose loyalty at the high end or the older end. And we did not. We did not. I mean, there's, we still had a broadcast by, we still had some kind of traditional advertising mm-hmm. that would be on broadcast. So that business, uh, laptop business, there are two seasons. There's back to school and holiday are the big mm-hmm. buying seasons for laptops. So I would hit hard on those seasons with some broadcast and lots of digital. And depending where somebody is in the buying funnel too, they are maybe just looking for features. They want the latest 4K screen or they want the latest thin and light or that type of thing. So mm-hmm. we would message for that stuff more directly. A lot of the um, other content type of stuff I'm talking about, uh, like these social films, some of them were actually done in, I won't say the off season, but the season where we didn't have our biggest buy going on in broadcast anyway. So kind of rounding out our media calendar with doing a lot of these really interesting content videos at times when we are already in market with a heavy buy, buy, buy 
Okay. So it, it helped the brand along quite a bit that way. So the older audience, we didn't lose. So that was, that was what I was um, very happy about it. Yeah. And, you know, and probably because they already had more, there was more relevance of Toshiba. Um, okay. I mean, one thing I used to describe about Toshiba, um, there was a little bit of a stumble upon brand. When I say that, meaning you might walk into a Best Buy, you'd see it on the counter with other laptops and you'd be like, hmm, well, gosh, there's a Toshiba and there's an HP and well, gee, the Toshiba actually has more spec, spec it's a better computer and mm-hmm. cheaper and gosh, I didn't think my dad had a Toshiba and he liked it. Okay, I'll do the Toshiba. So versus what I would call a destination brand where you've got, you know, the Apple fans wrapped around the block before it even comes out. Right. And so, Tom, taking this back for a minute, for the sake of our audience and the marketing leaders listening out there, tell them if someone wants to get started with putting a storytelling campaign together as part of their advertising, uh, whether they're trying to hit a younger audience or maybe just trying to make their brand more compelling in general, how would you advise them to get started down that path? Definitely, you know, start with the customer research and really start in understanding what your brand means to that target that you're going after or what are the most interesting features of whatever your, your product. And again, so consumer electronics are kind of a unique space, different services and other things. But one of the traps that consumer electronics does fall into sometimes tech falls into in general is the engineers get so far out ahead of things. And I think even um, Steve Jobs talked about this too. Is I think he, at one time he even made a comment uh, similar to, you know, our customers don't know what they want because we're creating it as it happens. With a lot of products, and usually most products, especially in the tech space, are designed to solve a particular problem. Or uh, whether it's, say, a thin and light, you know, I'm tired of carrying a heavy computer. Whether it's an easy clicking because I don't want to have to mess with the computer to detach it. Or I want a laptop that can fold backwards so it fully is a tablet too, that type of thing. Um, So really coming back to what that differentiation is and really understanding what differentiation plays best with what particular target. So that has to be the underlying of any sort of storytelling you're going to do. And then hopefully finding a way to weave that particular differentiation into the stories that are being told. Start inexpensive. You know, do the quick online videos. Um, you know, depending on your social media space, you can probably get production costs down pretty well. Um, and um, and just do some experiments and then find out you know what starts to catch on. And then the last piece to it, and this is, you know, you hear this everywhere, but there's very few genuine viral videos. Um, You guys know this. I mean, you have to give a little media, a little bit of push to get it seen, and then things might move along. So don't just simply create this stuff and throw it up on your own social media sites and expect volumes of people to come because it won't happen. You got to give it a little, you know, find that target, find a way to get some of it in front of a few people, the right people, and then you can start to see the numbers move. Yeah. Excellent advice. Tom, tell us, you'd mentioned before we got started recording that you're involved in a uh, nonprofit organization. Could you tell us more about that? Sure. Yeah. So about um, 13 years ago, my wife and I actually started a nonprofit for a rare childhood disease. And the nonprofit's called the Cure JM Foundation. And JM stands for Juvenile Myositis um, or Juvenile Dermatomyositis. And what it is, it's, a, it's an autoimmune disease that only affects two to three children in a million. So wow. it's really rare. 
And what it basically happens is the, the inflammation function, which is an immune reaction, doesn't shut off on these kids and their muscles and, and organs. And um, what happens over time is it actually damages the muscles and can damage organs. And we had some personal experience because I had a son who was four years old and um, slowly his, his came on very slowly that he got to a point where he could barely walk without um, falling or he could, couldn't lift his head off a pillow because he had just no strength. And wow. after, after about six months of just trying to try and figure out what it was, we did find a doctor and finally get a diagnosis. And then once we had the diagnosis, like, great, you know, we know what it is, so let's take care of it. Well, it's a rare disease and it, there's no known cure for it. And there's, um, in fact, most pediatricians would never even see a case of this, or if they did, they wouldn't know what they're seeing. Mm-hmm. So after the first year of just kind of struggling, of what are we going to do? Uh, we started our foundation and said, well, we, we're going to, we're going to cure this disease. So, um, so fast forward, we've since in the 13 years we've been around, we've actually raised 10 million for research. Wow. And we've actually established two sort of centers of treatment where we have a lot of the top scientists um, working on research. We've actually funded over 130 research studies and we were a contributor to the first book ever about myositis for kids. So, um, yeah, so it's a, it's a, and it's and positive end on my personal story. My son is 18 and, you know, he's in a remission. So, um, which is great. So, yeah, yeah, so, but a lot of kids don't get that lucky. And, and even though he's in a remission too, we always worry that because it's autoimmune, all autoimmune diseases are often triggered by something external. Mm-hmm. So, um, in the case of JM, uh, even a bad sunburn could bring back the whole disease. Uh, flare. Yeah. So, so you just have to be very careful. Um, and so, um, so anyway, so we started this group up and now we've got a community of families who've all come together and we have a conference every year where we've had people from as far away as Australia come to it, families. And our goal is to, well, our goal is actually to get rid of our foundation and make it no longer needed. Right. Absolutely. That's awesome. That's great that you guys are uh, doing that and trying trying to make a difference there, Tom. So we'll we'll make sure to include a link to that in the show notes as well so folks can find out more about just what you're doing there. Sure. And it's funny, too, because it was interesting just as I'm so so I do marketing in my, you know, paid life um, with companies. But it was an interesting process, even creating a, a nonprofit and because marketing plays into a nonprofit so heavily. And, and quite honestly, I don't think we could have ever done the things we have done without, really without the internet and without social media. And yeah. so, because that's where that community gets so strong. And that's where, unless you're directly affected by this disease, there's not a, not a reason to really know about or care about it. In fact, the challenge of rare disease is that um, a lot of drug companies don't even look at them. They're called orphan diseases mm-hmm. because there's no market necessarily for Right. The things that a drug company might come up with. So it's been a real interesting journey where we've had the opportunity. We've tapped into certain even online like contests. Um, there's a there's a company called CrowdRise. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's a crowdfunding for charities, and they have a contest every year. The holidays actually it's going on right now. We're participating, and in the past few years, the charities that raised the most on Giving Tuesday got an extra $25,000 and we just got wow. that this year. 
Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. And the contest will go through the beginning of January. And if we end up in first place on that, uh, we could get an additional $100,000. So it's a, um, it motivates our whole community of families who are fighting this. And, uh, but also gives a way to, there's nothing that rallies people more than a contest sometimes. Definitely. Well, we'll make sure that, uh, that we put a, a link to that as well, along with the video pieces that you talked about earlier for Toshiba for our audience so they can connect with you. Tom, one last thing for our audience. One thing we try to ask all of our guests on the Lion Share Marketing Podcast is uh, if, if you could give our audience one thing to take away, what's that one big idea that, that you'd like our audience to leave this interview with? You know, for me, it's always start with the start with the customer or start with the research. And and um, quite often, uh, I'm surprised at marketers that just because they're not in front of customers every day, you know, salespeople are often much more sensitive to it. But really, try and really get to know the customer, why the customer likes your product or service, and then try and also capture the language they used to describe your product and service for the people who love it, uh, because that's what's going to motivate others like them to be interested in your product or service. So just, again, I, I'm a, a big believer in you got to always come back to the customer. And if you don't have budgets for research, then just get out and start trying to talk to customers as best you can. And that'll be the basis for everything else that you can advise to your agency sources or internal communications to really start making sure that the customer is always represented in your communications. That's great advice. Yeah. Very good, Tom. And uh, thanks for joining us today. It's been a pleasure having you on. Where else can uh, our listeners find you if, if they decide they want to reach out and connect with you? Probably the best way is LinkedIn. Seek me under Tom Hume, the usual LinkedIn URL slash Tom Hume. That's probably the easiest way to find me and I'll, I'll respond to you. All right. Sounds great. So, Tom, thanks again for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. And until next time, you've been listening to the Lionshare Marketing Podcast. Okay, I'd just like to thank Tom Hume again for this interview. If you'd like more information, links, notes, you can go ahead and go on over to lionssharepodcast.com slash five. You'll find the notes there and links. And also, if you'd like to leave us in a review on iTunes or go there and subscribe, we would love that. We would love to have your feedback and comments. Hey, so Kyle. go ahead, go on over. Yeah. Hey, I was just uh, wondering, you know sushi's pretty good out here in San Diego, right? Sushi. Yeah, sushi. I know. San Diego. I've been to some great sushi places yeah, in San Diego out, with you, in fact. Yeah. Shout out to Harney Sushi. It's best in town. But uh, do you know why you should never get sushi with a marketer? Why I should never get sushi with a marketer? I have no idea why. They insist on showing pre-roll ads. <laughs> pre-roll ads. Okay. I, I think <laughs> that one's a little fishy. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. Oh, thanks. Thanks. I'm just, you know, yeah, coming back hooked. at it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Maybe that was even better, I would say. Sorry. I'm just fishing for uh, a Oh, here we go. Here we go. Well, thanks, folks, for listening. <laughs> hey, thanks, guys. <laughs> and until next time, you've been listening to the Lion's Hair Marketing Podcast. Cheers. You've been listening to the Lion's Share Podcast. Brought to you by Fidelitas Development, your marketing partner for better brand loyalty.